Welcome everybody, my name is Mikal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians. Episode 13, Sunni Islam. When talking about Islam, Sunni Islam is traditionally the default, the norm. While this is clearly unfair to the many Shias out there, there's a very good reason to view Sunnis as the overwhelmingly dominant sect of Islam. It's because they are. Sunnis make up roughly 90% of Muslims, a sect dominance that has no real parallel in Christianity. Almost every Muslim country is Sunni. Just a short list here, from west to east. Morocco, Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, half of Nigeria, and a handful of other West African countries, some Balkan states, Egypt, the Horn of Africa, Turkey, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, half of Iraq, most of the Arabian Peninsula, Turkey, many of the former Soviet states of the Caucasus, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and many sordid Central Asian stands, the Muslims living in India, Bangladesh, Malaysia, Indonesia. In contrast, if you're counting majority Shia countries, the number will be four on the low and six on the high end. And the only one who is a large country is Iran. So the Sunnis have always been the default throughout history. The original four caliphs, the great dynasties that followed, the Ottoman Sultanates. I can't think of a time in history when the Islamic big three cities, Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem, were under anything other than Sunni control. The Sunni story begins in 632, when Muhammad died without a clear heir. This was particularly important because, by this time, Muhammad wasn't just the leader of his small group of Muslims. Pretty much the entire Arabian Peninsula had flocked to his banner, united under Muhammad's religion. Obviously, this was no small feat, but without Muhammad, would the tribes remain united? Some thought the new leader should obviously be Ali, Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin, a great warrior and a surefire leader who would be respected. But the Sunnis had other ideas, shying away from what they thought could turn into a hereditary monarchy. The Sunnis won out, choosing the bland and boring Abu Bakr as the new leader of the faithful. He was Muhammad's best friend, not his blood relative. There was an oddly American sensibility to this similar to John Adams succeeding George Washington's epic stature and personality. The contrast was arguably intentional. It was the faith that mattered, not the man. This would not be a personality cult religion, nor one based on the family of Muhammad. It would be based on the path of Islam, the Sunnah, and the people who believed in that were called Sunnis. The next three caliphs, including Ali, Caliph number four, derived their authority as the first among equals, rather than as a divine right hereditary king. Those will come soon enough, uh, starting with Muawiyah later on. But the succeeding hereditary dynasties would be Sunni as well, but lacked any religious legitimacy. And this would be just fine with Sunnis, actually, in the end. It's not the political leader who was responsible for the religious health of the people. The Sunnah was still the Sunnah. So how should Christians think about Sunnis? While this is an oversimplification, it's actually pretty solid. The Sunnis are similar to Protestants in Christianity. 
just a few key points to file away in your brain. Sunnis stress fundamental sources like the Quran, the Hadith, and example of the early community, much like the Protestant focus on scripture and the example of Paul. Two, Sunnis are light on clerics for the reasons just stated. The Sunnis have no clerical hierarchy. Number three, Sunnis can be extreme in their distaste for iconography. Just think of the difference in the artwork between a Protestant church and a Catholic church. Same thing in Islam, with the icon wearing Sunni as the Protestant. The same is true of saints. Sunnis have no saints. While the family of Muhammad, along with some clerics, are often venerated by Shias in ways that can make Sunnis uncomfortable, just like a Methodist is unlikely to carry a card with a saint on it, Sunnis don't paint pictures of Islam's great figures. Sunnism has always been the dominant form of Islam globally, but for a thought exercise, let's turn that around. Like, say at some point in history, Shiism was dominant, and a Sunni reformation was at hand. Here are some points a Sunni reformer might make. Let's say an Islamic Martin Luther uh, I almost said Martin Luther King. Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of a great seminary in Qam, which is kind of like the Shia Vatican. It would make points like this. One, the only imam you should be concerned with is the bearded guy giving a sermon at your local mosque. There is no greater imam, and there never was. Two, innovation should be a dirty word for Muslims. You do not get to create, from nothing, holy things. Number three, do not venerate your saints and build shrines to men. Like, what are you, a bunch of Christians? Four, Muhammad was just a man, and there is nothing inherently special about his lineage. And five, any beliefs developed hundreds of years after the first community are, by default, invalid. And so on. The key to Sunni thought, more so than other factors, is the belief in the righteousness of the early community. The 10 years of the Muslim community before Muhammad's death is the ideal society. And that is where one should look for guidance and inspiration. You know, including, of course, the Quran. But again, the early community was fully aware of the entire Quran. And they had a prophet around to interpret it. You can't get a better example than that. So much of the Sunni Shia divide is simply aesthetic, at least in modern times. The Sunnis prefer the aesthetics of the early community, first under Muhammad and then under Abu Bakr. It was Abu Bakr who announced that Muhammad was just a man and emphasized that it was Allah who lives forever, and Allah is the only being worthy of worship. Sunnis believe that men do not make Islam. It is the true path, the Sunnah, that's the name Sunni, that should guide Islam instead. That path is revealed in the Quran and the Hadith, or the Sunnah, of the Prophet. And while Islam has plenty of sects, like the many of branches of uh, Shia Islam, uh, heretical offshoots like the Ahmadiyya and the Nation of Islam, none of those sects are within Sunni Islam. Sunnis are simply Sunnis, although that does not mean complete uniformity. Sunnis emphasize Islamic law, and most Sunni thought falls into one of the four early schools of Islamic law. One, the Hanafi school. Two, the Maliki school, three, the Shafi school, and four, the Hanbali school. 
the Hanafi school. The Hanafi school is named after Abu Hanifa, who died in 767. The Hanafi school stresses rationality and flexibility, and it is the most influential of the four. It is also the largest today, and its major adherents are in much of the Middle East, Turkey, Central Asia, Europe, Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan. This tradition births several theological schools, starting with the Qadariya, who were proponents of free will and rejected predestination. These were the spiritual grandfathers of the Mutazilites, who were basically ancient Athenians with Muslim flavor. The extreme rationalism of the Mutazilites, for the most part, did not outlast the Islamic Golden Age, but their spirit is seen in today's more liberal and modernist Islamic theologians. A similar theology that did survive, however, is Maturidism, I think I got that right, which elevates reason above the Hadiths, meaning if a, if a Hadith seems illogical, it's okay to discard it. This does not apply to the Quran, though. If you're ever learning from a Muslim professor, professor, the odds are very good that he or she is from the Hanafi school. The Maliki school. The Maliki school is named after Malik ibn Anas, who died in 795. It places extreme importance on the example of the early community, deriving much of its law on the Hadith. It is practiced mainly in the extreme west ends of the Islamic world, such as North Africa, West Africa, and in the past, Islamic Spain. The school birthed the Jabarites, a form of Islamic Calvinists who believed in predestination. The Shafi school. The Shafi school is named after Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi, who died in 820. It's a school based almost entirely on the legal analysis of Shafi himself, and it's a fusion between rationalism and traditionalism. This school is popular in countries that were never part of the original Islamic empire, but in countries where Islam was spread by merchants, like East Africa, Malaysia, Indonesia. The Shafis began using the tradition of analogy, or kias, to help the, uh, the Quran and Hadith apply to situations beyond their literal meanings. This school also uses ijma, or consensus, as a valid criteria for Islamic law and theology. The consensus, the consensus here can refer to the consensus of the early community, but also to the current consensus of Muslim scholars and or the Muslim community. From the Shafi school comes Asharism, a major school of theology that finds a middle way between faith and reason. Some of the greats come from this school, including Al-Ghazali. The Hanbali school. The Hanbali school was named after esteemed Hadith collector Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who died in 855. This school emphasizes traditionalism and scriptural literalism, or in other words, it is extremely conservative. This is the dominant school in Saudi Arabia. The Hanbalis include some conservative giants, such as Ibn Hazm and Ibn Tamiyah, who was a 14th century theologian that railed against Greek influences in Islam. Later on, this would also include a man named Muhammad Ibn Abd al-Wahhab, a founding father of modern Islamic fundamentalism. They are often called Wahhabis, but also Salafists, it means basically the same thing, a conservative form of Islam that seeks the pure form of the religion as practiced by the first community. 
This school was also instrumental in more modern fundamentalist movements, especially those responding to post-colonial social forces. Salafism can be used as a reactionary tool to cleanse the community of modern influences, particularly Western ones. Islamist extremists, including the violent ones, tend to be of the Hanbali school. But it's not fair to paint the entire Hanbali school as intolerant or violent. They're just the most conservative Muslims. Again, you should not consider these to be sects. They're all part of the same sect, but with different approaches. Think of the difference in a single church between the fundamentalists, the social conservatives, the living Bible adherents, etc. The Hanafi school is that guy in church who is highly educated, open, and understanding. The Maliki school is the guy with the what would Jesus do wristband. The Shafi school is the person who reads theology books for fun. And the Hanbali school is the person with half the Bible memorized. These people are all Christians and they can all be found in any church. Same with the Sunni schools of Islamic law. And remember that Islamic law is the equivalent of Christian theology. It is the gold standard, the highest concern of the religion. So theology takes a backseat to law in Islam, but there are raging theological arguments in Islam nonetheless. Full disclosure here, because I am a Christian, I find these arguments much more interesting than those regarding law. I just find thought far more intriguing than practice, a personal bias I will always have. Anyway, here are a few major theology debates that have taken place in Sunni Islam over the last 1400 years or so. During the, gold, the Islamic Golden Age, scholars flocked to what is now Iraq to revive the old Greek philosophers and translate their works into Arabic. Aristotle was a particular favorite. So while discussing sweet lady reason in a massive kingdom defined by Islam, the questions became inevitable. What is the role of reason in Islam? As mentioned earlier, the Hanafi school places a higher premium on reason, logic, rational thinking than the other three schools. The most extreme practitioners of reason were a group called the Mutazilites, who were swept up in the Arabic discovery of Aristotle and other Greek philosophers. To the Metazolites, there was no contradiction between rationalism and the Quran, but later, more fundamentalist theologians would come to despise the elevation of reason in Islam. And they have a point from a religious perspective. And if reason is so great, why do we need revelation at all? The Metazolites, on the extreme end of the rationalist spectrum, argued that if a Quranic passage does not make rational sense, it should be reinterpreted in a way that conforms with reason. You can see the pitfalls here. At what point is reason idolatry? If reason is above God's divine revelation, isn't reason your actual God? The other end of the spectrum is to discard reason entirely, blindly and literally interpreting scripture. This approve this approach proves to be just as unpopular. Most Sunni Muslims fall somewhere in the middle, balancing both divine revelation and reason. It's the foundation of most mainstream Muslim theologies. Use the Quran, the Hadith, and also your own reason. As stated in an earlier episode, the Quran is the equivalent of Jesus Christ himself. So it's no wonder Muslims began to have similar arguments as in the early church. Only in this case, the Quran was the subject of it rather than Jesus. Funny enough, the Muslims ended up in a pretty much the exact same place as Christians on this topic. 
While there has been no Council of Nicaea to affirm anything officially, the overwhelming majority of Muslim tradition holds that the Quran is uncreated, eternal, and unchanging. It is God's speech, an attribute of God, a part of God's essence. You know, like Jesus. Like the early church, this took centuries to be mainstreamed. And the Metazolites, those rapscallions of reason, were the main proponents of what eventually became a heresy. The Metazolites used a very simple argument. If the Quran is God's words, surely God's words could not have preceded him. When anything speaks, the speaking being, in this case God, the person who is speaking, predates the words. And then the speaker creates the words. The rebuttal to this, which eventually won out, cited passages in the Quran and the Hadith, which make it clear that God and his creation are not the same essence. Men are not God, for example. Why? Because man created God. So saying the same thing of the Quran basically demotes it. If the Quran is an attribute of God rather than a creation of God, that's what makes it holy. So the Islamic orthodoxy is on solid ground here from a purely religious standpoint, at least in the Western Abrahamic sense. You can score this as a victory for Christian thought. The parallels between this and Trinitarian Christian thought are hard to ignore. And it makes sense. This argument took place centuries after Muhammad and in a heavily Christian environment. Many of the most educated people in medieval Iraq were Christians, and the Byzantine influence was still strong. And I think that had everything to do with the Mutazilites losing this argument. The uncreated viewpoint had a, nearly a millennia of monotheistic religious arguments under its belt. The created argument only had old-school Athenian logic applied to something Aristotle never would have understood. If you didn't follow that, I totally understand. <laughs> Just to clarify, the Quran is uncreated. And the reason is because it cannot be a creation of God. It is part of God's essence. That is why time is irrelevant in the Mutazilite argument. God and his essence are not bound by time. Again, this sounds pretty Christian, doesn't it? Free will. When talking about free will in Islam, there is a tension between two ideas. One, the Quran often places God in charge of people's hearts. The hardening of someone's hearts, be it Pharaoh or an early enemy of Islam, is presented not just as a character flaw, but as a divine punishment. God can soften or harden people's hearts making them more or less receptive to seeing the path to God. God is fully in charge of time, space, and the human heart. And the Quran makes that pretty explicit. And two, Islam sees the world as a sort of trial by fire, a test that, if passed, can reap either extreme rewards or horrific punishments. A person is fully responsible for the path taken and whether to listen to God's messengers. So again, different ends there. So when a person chooses good and follows the path of God, is that God's choice or the person's? The Sunnis shade closer to predestination than the Shias do, notwithstanding the early Mutazilites. But it is rare to see extreme beliefs in predestination in Sunni Islam, with mostly theologians and schools taking a middle route. So if someone asks whether Sunnis believe in free will, the most likely answer is yes and no. 
By the way, that is the correct answer to almost any theological question in any religion. Yes and no. Anyway, the usual answer is some form of theological idea that allows both predestination and free will to exist at the same time, not unlike Christianity. One example is that God creates the possibility of something, but the human chooses to follow through and basically acquires agency through God in that way. That allows the previous two concepts to coexist. God is in complete control, and humans can choose their own paths. I'd like to end with a short bit on what Sunnism means in the modern world. High theology is all well and good, but none of this makes it into news reports about Sunnis and their sometimes violent disagreements with Shias and other Muslims. Much of the sectarian conflict in the modern world has nothing to do with theology or Islamic law. It's that over the last thousand years, in places with long memories and never-moving populations, Sunnism is almost an ethnicity. This is particularly true in the Arab world, where this century's flashpoints have often been inter-Arab conflicts exacerbated by the thousand-year-old Sunni-Shia divide. Example 1. Iraq. Remember when the U.S. Army steamrolled the Iraqi army, including the supposedly elite Republican Guard? Remember that footage of the toppled statues, of people smacking Saddam's bronze head with their shoes? Yeah, those people hated Saddam but what they really objected to was Sunni domination. The Sunnis were the ruling group in Iraq, despite being a minority in most of the country. The Shias hated the Sunnis so much they welcomed the U.S. and, once it was safe to do so, turned on the Americans. To an outsider at the time, this was very confusing. They were all Arabs, right? Wasn't Iraq a majority Arab nation with some Kurds to the north? Not as they see it. The sectarian divide... It's basically an ethnicity, making Iraq a ridiculous farce of a country when you really think about it. It should never have been a country in the first place. Iraq's current ruling class prefers the Iranians to their supposed countrymen, and that's because of the sectarian divide. Example 2. Syria. Syria has the opposite situation. The Sunnis are the majority and have no power. Syria is full of Arabs who hate each other. Sunnis, Shias, Alawites, and Christians. Can you even imagine what an interfaith marriage is like in that environment? An example three, Lebanon. You ever wonder why Hezbollah exists? Like, how is it possible that a terrorist group controls the southern third of a once prosperous country? The answer, more than likely, sectarianism. Hezbollah represent the Shias. Lebanon is an Arab nation but it's divided into three mostly equal parts, I believe, Sunni, Shia, and Christian. And in that part of the world, you just go with your team. A quick aside on Sunnis and government. Keep in mind that for Sunnis, the government does not have to be of divine origin or have divine authority in the style of an old-school European monarch who believed God wanted him to be on the throne. The ideal Sunni leader is a first among equals, a man who rules the land by the tenets of Islam, but is not necessarily holier than anyone else. He is more philosopher-king than pope, more George Washington than Holy Roman Emperor, more Abu Bakr than Ayatollah Khomeini. I can't think of a single Sunni country right now who is led by someone who claims to be holier than the population. 
even in the extreme case of Saudi Arabia, the king does not pretend to rule by divine right. Even though the official constitution of Saudi Arabia is the Quran itself, he has Islamic law scholars to tell him what it means, and he acts accordingly. Even other very conservative Sunni Muslim countries do not have religious leaders acting as chief executives. Pakistan, for example, is led by a retired cricket player. Pakistan and Saudi Arabia both have Islam as the beating heart of their nation's identities, but its leaders do not derive legitimacy from piety. That is the Sunni sensibility. Now, that is not to say that Sunnis are united in Islam being the highest law of the land, either, particularly in the modern world. A just Islamic ruler is called for by the Sunni ideal, but there are plenty of recent examples of Sunni countries who were led by less-than-Islamic leaders. Turkey, until very recently, was a militant secular country. So was Iraq under Saddam Hussein, and Syria under the Assads. Egypt is led by a military strongman. Plenty of Sunni countries are not democracies, so really, the people themselves are the ultimate law of the land in those places. To a conservative Sunni, this probably seems insane. If you have rules from God, isn't it the height of arrogance and hubris to create your own? But like anyone else, the Sunnis are a diverse lot. A very diverse lot. That tends to happen when membership hovers near a billion. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.